Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, today we have a very special podcast, and I, I kind of mean like in the a very special episode of Blossom um, <laughs> sense, or uh, you know, one of those after-school specials that tells you that if you smell marijuana, you'll jump out of a high school uh, biology lab window. Um, I guess we have today um, a person from the internet. Um, um, or as she likes to call herself, a verified nobody. Yes. Uh, Bridget Fetacy. Fetacy. Yes. That's yep, how we that's, say it. That's Fetacy. how we say it. Okay. And what kind of name is Fetacy? It's a word I made up. Is it really? Yeah. I made it up. It's actually a long story, but I'll try and condense it. So, so this is an alias. This is not your mm-hmm, name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh-huh. So I started a company when I was 26. Six uh-huh. or seven. I'm twenty. I'm forty. I'm twenty. I'm twenty-one now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reverse aging. I'm forty-one now. But um, I the name of the company was Fetacy. Uh-huh. So it was like two. I guess it was twenty-eight. 20, I don't know how old I was. Um, two thousand six or something. Right around in the dawn of social media. Uh-huh. And everyone told me you have to get online and social media with your with your company. But they didn't even have, you know, Facebook pages for companies or brands or anything. Uh-huh. So I just used Fetacy since it was a word I made up as my last name. Uh-huh. I was like, But well, it's, not, it's not your legal last name. No, no. Oh, okay. uh, and so it ended up inadvertently being amazing uh-huh. because I didn't realize um, – I didn't realize, you know, the space I would kind of stumble into and it just it's like a little bit of separation from the person and the persona, I think. Yeah, no, I, I kinda wish maybe I had gone by my, my old porn name, you know, just kept, <laughs> but instead I stuck with Goldberg. Um which is nobody's porn name. Yeah, so um, it was a word I made up to describe which made no sense back then uh-huh. when reality becomes parody. Uh huh. So that was the because I just had all these moments where I felt like it was like irony squared when uh-huh. irony doubles back on itself and becomes literal or when reality becomes parody. And that made no sense to anyone. And now everyone is saying beyond parody. So the the word makes a little more sense. And then I went bankrupt because I didn't have a business plan, uh-huh. but I kept my website, fetacy.com, and it was just a blog for 10 years. And then I ended up um, going on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we should back up for people who, because um, we have a disproportionate slice of um, wonky, nerdy, political philosophy obsessed type people who listen to this podcast. So some, some strange people with. You know, fingernails so long they're starting to curl in on themselves <laughs> again, right? You know, some real Howard Hughes types might not know who you are. I hope they don't. <laughs> um, so uh, we kind of got to know each other through Twitter because um, sort of like, um, like you know in the movies when the zombies are really coming in fast <laughs> or uh, the aliens are pouring out of the sky in increasing numbers and there are two people in a crowd who kind of, lock eyes amidst the smoke and ruin and children being carried away to be eaten. And they're like, maybe we should team up a little (laughs) bit. And so there's a lot of those kinds of, and I'm not saying that like we're like this like long lost couple or anything, but like there are a lot of those kinds of relationships that come out on Twitter where you're just like, 
you end up linking with people that you otherwise wouldn't just because you end up kind of seeing how stupid things are the same way. Yeah. And I feel like I... So coming, I talk a lot about factory settings and coming. I, I was a liberal, but uh-huh. not by, not because I studied politics, just because it was my factory settings, what sure. it was squeezed into my brain in my family. I come from the Northeast. And you live in L.A. now. I live That's in L.A. now. That's where I last now. saw you in yes. L.A. Yeah. And have been there for mi- almost 15 years now. And have been in these kind of liberal, you know, enclaves and I never really had to question or think about any of it and 2016 was kind of this watershed moment where I everything became hyper political and I was writing at Playboy at the time in 2015 right and I didn't know about the culture wars <laughs> because I was I was liberal, so yeah. I, I like it, academia and the media. I didn't I, I didn't, as uh, Michael Malice has said, it just goes to show you how pervasive the cathedral is that you never even knew you were in it. Right. And right. so I just, fish don't know they're wet. Exactly, yeah. and I didn't realize. And then I kept stepping afoul of the left. When I would say things like uh, real man, use these terms when I was writing, I kept getting piled on by my own, quote unquote, what I thought was tribe. Mm -hmm. And that led me to looking at everything. And then Trump came into power and I kind of ended up really looking to the quote unquote never Trumpers for Mm -hmm some sense because I think the hardest thing in the Trump era for somebody like me or anyone who wasn't was apolitical or not particularly studious in this regard is is this something that all presidents did that the media is acting like it's crazy or is this something that we need to legitimately be worried about and push back against right and I don't know who to look to for those kinds of that kind of information other than I felt like never Trumpers because they were you seem or or people who push back against him seem to have some sense of conservatism. And I knew nothing about it. Yeah. No, it, it's I mean, I don't call myself a never Trumper, which seems like a Japanese soldier in the, you know, the islands in the Pacific in 47 refuses to acknowledge that the war is over. Um, <laughs> but because. Uh, um, I don't think of you as one. Yeah, you no, just get grouped with the. I, it, we call it around here. We call it Trump skeptical, just because. Okay. We haven't drunk the Kool Aid, yeah. right? And um, we, uh, but we try to sort of call him like we see him. Sometimes we say he's wrong. Sometimes we say he's right. I, I refuse to say he's a person of good character because I don't think he is, mm-hmm. and he demonstrates that every single day. And I. I think it's very funny watching people trying to come up with every couple of weeks someone comes up with a new explanation for why no no he really is a person of good character. Um but sort of the problem I mean I kind of understand feeling lost like that because among the sort of resistance liberal types you get these people you know my standard line about this is the problem with the re- resistance is they they say stuff like Donald Trump put salt on his French fries. Hitler put salt on his French right, fries, right? right. I mean, they have, they can't, like, it's exactly the problem you're talking about, right. but they make it sound like everything that Trump does is a violation of all democratic and constitutional norms, and that's just flatly not true. Right. But then some of the things are those kinds of violations, and right. being able to make those distinctions 
gets increasingly hard for people. It it's seems. hard because the the kind of distrust with the media, and and that is something that I always used to hear about. Like this, when I, <laughs> it's funny. I went on Glenn Beck's show and I was like, you know, the culture is like they were going on before 2013. But <laughs> 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 I feel like the, this idiot. Like, did you know they have double double standards, Glenn? <laughs> um, <laughs> Can you believe it? But it. So I started. See, that's the hard thing. Is um, I'm in recovery, and so I cannot be in resentment. Uh, for eight years or four to eight years. So it's bad for me. Yeah. So from a personal level, I remember the night of the election. I watched everyone kind of increase, just, you know, fall apart around me. And then I very quickly realized I had to come into acceptance of what is. Yeah. And so, you know, so much of uh, on the left in particular is this cognitive dissonance of, What's so funny about them, too, is I watched for a year while they all mocked him Mm -hmm. and looked down on him and didn't take him seriously. And I used to say, you guys are going to joke him into the presidency and and then you're going to be freaking out. And you were all laughing. Nobody had it. He, He was not an existential threat, you know, in 2015. Right. He was just kind of a joke. And then everybody suddenly treated him like this. Well, why didn't you treat him that way? when you had the chance before he became the nominee and then everybody slowly lost their minds and I think that cognitive dissonance and I see this on the right too because of the character family values thing is that they'd rather be right and believe that Trump is Hitler than admit that okay he's a shitty person Mm -hmm. sorry that's right Um, we we, we, we we when we when we knew you were coming here we reconcile ourselves that we were going to get the explicit material. Warning. I won't. I'm, <laughs> I can okay. be a non-swearer. It's, right. it's, um, right. it's right. He's a he's a person of low character, uh-huh. and and um. But no, you're right about the cognitive dissonance thing. People they end up changing their standards to fit the conclusion that they want, rather than like stick to the standards if they yield the conclusion they don't want. Right, because the brain actually is more comfortable. People are happier being right than happier that Trump might not be Hitler. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. And I think that's where the broken brain syndrome comes in. Yeah. And I always joke, you know, there's all this talk about Trump derangement derangement syndrome, and I think it's got two strains. There's MAGA and resistance. It's Trump is everything or Trump does nothing wrong. Right. No, I think that's right. It's, there's this, I call it uh, TDS and PTDS, right? Pro-Trump right. derangement syndrome and Trump derangement <laughs> That's syndrome. That's good, too. Um, so you mentioned, because uh, I assume some of this stuff is going to come up. Oh, I should notify listeners. This is another one of these exciting crossover po- podcasts like we did with Nick Gillespie. Um, so, or like, you know, with, with uh, the Fonz and Mork um, from Happy Days. Uh, we are going to do, I, I'm talking to Bridget on The Remnant, and then in the second half, we're going to flip it around, and she's going to be talking to me on my podcast, on her podcast. Um, Walk-ins welcome. Walk-ins welcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll be able to find them all where podcasts are found. But uh, <laughs> So um, uh, let's move off the Trump stuff for a little bit, because it may come up later. Who cares? And um, you mentioned you were in recovery. Yes. Right? You're pretty open and honest about all of that. Yes. Right? Um, uh, in in whatever way you're comfortable with, why don't you just sort of give the sort of one minute 
two minutes, however long you take, I don't care, uh, sort of uh, e explainer to listeners who don't know your story, what your story is in ways, in any way that you're comfortable doing. Um, okay. So I just I, want to talk about this stuff, but I want you to tell people where you're coming from on this stuff. Yeah. So, um, so I was in, I started drinking really young and come from an Irish Catholic, very much um, part of the culture. Drinking is. We do not traffic in those stereotypes on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm only speaking from experience. We had a family gathering and it was a, we called it a, um, like a family wine off uh -huh. and it was the cousins against the aunts. It was all the female cousins against the aunts to basically see who could out drink. Sweet. And we didn't have any standard for what the winner, how you determined <laughs> who won. So we were all drinking and one of my aunts, my dad's one of 10 uh -huh. and he has five sisters and four brothers. And one of my aunts went out to sneak a cigarette after she had quit and didn't want anyone to bust her. And somebody came outside. So she jumped up uh -huh. and fell face first into the gravel and then came in and had blood gushing down her face. And my other aunt's a nurse. So she's like, you need stitches. And it <laughs> was this whole thing. And my cousin comes in. She's like, we won, we won, we <laughs> one and then the aunts were like oh yeah why and she's like because we're not bleeding <laughs> and that gives you an idea of my family got it okay so i um it, they're great they're amazing and i was in rehab by the time i was 19 basically so there's a lot of reasons for that but long story short i started using Heroin was in rehab at 19, and then when I got out, I just convinced myself that if I didn't use heroin, I didn't have a problem because that was my problem. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, but I kept on drinking, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I got, I was in the restaurant industry for a, a very long time, and just um, kept on going really all through my 20s and 30s, and then um, hit a, a rock bottom that wasn't as physical or material but was more internal mm -hmm. which is harder to explain sure. but um i just felt like i was rotting from the inside out which is you know people always want like did you get a dui what was the thing and right. i'm like ah, i just felt like i was rotting and they're like Ugh. <laughs> yeah. that's horrible that sounds worse and so then i just and i knew you know i always knew after i was 19 when I was up at five in the morning or when I was resenting the birds and the joggers or whatever that uh, I had, uh, that I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And so then I just quit. Um, and it's been six years now. That's since great. I've, yeah. And I quit. I was a big stoner too. Uh huh. Do you regularly go to the AA meetings? Yeah, yeah. Or, I'm yeah. in 12 step. Yep. Yeah. Um I hated the program. You uh -huh. know, it's funny because I did I when I was 19, I was very and that's how I got myself out of sobriety. I was like, this is a fear-based and I read all the books right, and right. I made the whole case against it and so I left and pretty much did everything in my power to avoid it. I wasn't just kind of like, oh, to each their own. I was very much like no, F that. It's yeah. not for me or, or anyone. It's bad. But now that uh, I humbly sat back in the rooms, I'm actually so grateful that I have it. Thank God in this time because I find so much sanity in yeah. a lot of the principles in that program. One, being principles before personality. Right. 
And so, and just coming into acceptance, accepting the, you know, powerlessness, what I can control and what I can't. I can apply these not just to substances, but to people, places, things, life. So it's been helpful. And um, I'm grateful because I feel like when I feel crazy, that is kind of my true north. So that's the um Did you do the G-rated. make amends thing? I did. Yeah. I How did. Was that? that you know it, it's funny because I went in more of the, the amends are the things that I feel like everybody hears about and that yeah. you see in the movies and whatever. And I didn't that was nothing compared to the fourth step which is a personal inventory mm-hmm. and I don't think if I had known about the fourth I was so afraid of the ninth step <laughs> that had I didn't know about the fourth step and if I had known about that I don't think I would have even gone in because it so thoroughly looks at all of your resentments and fear and character defects and you you start to see all these patterns that um everyone should do it really yeah. <laughs> no it's it's funny because like um, my I try to keep my daughter out of this stuff but she's gone through some pretty intense teenage angst uh, and uh but you know i mean she's as far as i can tell she's got no substance abuse problems yeah. but um but there's all sorts of things in like the 12 step thing that would kind of help her yeah. i keep trying to tell her that you know you shouldn't worry about stuff that you can't fix you yeah. know i mean it's just it there there's this guy james burnham who used to say uh problems without solutions aren't problems right you know, they're just facts of life right you know? right um, and uh, and so there's a lot of stuff in there that that I always thought was pretty use- pretty useful life lessons. Regardless, um, uh, it's funny when you were talking about your rock bottom thing. It reminds me Arthur Brooks, the former head of AEI, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine. He always tells people because um, he's in, you know he's uh, in recovery too. Um, that he said, look. Every human being gets a certain amount of alcohol that they're allowed to drink in their lives. Yeah. And I ran through mine really quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? It stopped working for me at the end. Yeah. It just, all of it stopped working. It didn't, I barely would feel any of the effects of any substances, which is really when you're at that point. And I, you know, I started getting the shakes and that's yeah. not good. No. I mean, that is, when you're waking up and shaking, that's a uh, bad it's a warning sign. It's a efficacious warning sign. Yes. So do you, just, because I'm curious about all this stuff. I mean, yeah. just. Um, I love talking. I talk about this all day. Um, um, have you seen um, the meetings change much through the opioid crisis stuff? Um, so LA is interesting because we have such a huge recovery um, community. Yeah. So recovery and the... The recovery in L.A. is some of the best, but it's also where many there are halfway houses and treatment centers and everything sort of specialized. Well, it's just that there's a lot of people from out of state being sent there to get well. And it's not I mean, that's a whole other kind of topic. But um, when you go, I go to meetings wherever I go and Mm -hmm. I definitely I don't think they've changed. I just think there's more people struggling. The the um, revolving door seems to be moving. I, I don't know. It's funny. When I first went into the program, they said, if you hang around here long enough, you're going to see a lot of people die, and that's yeah. absolutely been the case. Yeah. It's so it, – I don't know 
I have a bit of survivor's guilt yeah. between 20 and 35, how I made it. Yeah. I don't that like there, but for the grace of God, go I. I, I don't know how that happened. It's just, and how somebody, you know, my friend was speaking the other day and she said a lot of people better than me have choked on their vomit in their sleep. Yeah. So it's just a fluke, really. No, I mean, cause the reason, one of the reasons I asked is I was listening to this piece on NPR recently about, uh, you know, the heroin addiction aspect of all this. And one of the main things that kills people in recovery is you make it for a while, you yeah, think you gotta relax. handle things, and then you go back and yep. you think you can handle the doses yep. that you could handle when your body was like- That's a, how Janice died. Yeah, it's all, yep. it's one thing when you build up a lot of tolerance, but then if you're clean and you try to do at that high plateau that you'd had when you hit yep. the bottom, your body just can't take it, and I was just wondering if you, if, 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 given that the spike in the opioid crisis is what it is, if you'd seen more of that lately, or we aren't. There's been a. It doesn't seem more or less than all the time. Yeah. Be, but because I there's such a huge percentage of people in recovery, it's probably. Um, I would I would love to know those numbers, whether it's higher or lower. Yeah. But I would I I would imagine that somewhere where the opioid epidemic is really intense um, in in the states like that that it you a there are three thousand meetings a week and right. so you don't see in the smaller towns you see the same people every right. single week and I I imagine that you would probably notice it would be more noticeable yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's what's interesting is I actually don't know because it's probably less noticeable because there's so many places for you to go right. And it's L.A. It's a tough, you know, it's hard. I, my, I have friends up in um, Portland who say it's really noticeable up there, mm -hmm. that there's just, uh, a it's like a revolving door and people are, yeah. they're coming in, they're staying clean for two or three days and then going out and coming back in and then going out and that will happen nine times and then they won't show up and you'll find out that they're dead. Yeah. So, um Going by your personal experience, right, rather mm -hmm. than sort of bold, categorical, philosophical things, mm -hmm. where do you come down on the question of legalization? Of or the drug war generally. Um. Right? So that's interesting. I I I always knew I'd live to see weed legalized. Mm -hmm. I used to say that to my dad when I was 12 and he wouldn't believe me. Yeah. But that I kind of knew. I don't know. You know, I know that statistically, like, that there's proof that it's good in some places to legalize everything. I'm, I tend to be more libertarian, but I'm, I'm not sure. I've really been talking a lot about this and wrestling with this because even with weed and seeing how accessible that is. So I have, I work with a lot of young teenage girls and, you know, 19 years old around that age. And they're struggling in LA because it's legal and weed is everywhere and it's just normal now. Yeah. And they will try and stop doing drugs like Xanax or what, or drinking. And then weed just, it, because people kind of look at it like, oh, that's not a drug. It doesn't, right. there are none of the effects. And I just, I, I don't know that that's, weed was a huge 
crutch for me and I used it for many yeah. years. So uh, I understand the medicinal aspect and all of this. I know people who it's very helpful for, but for me, it was definitely a smoke. It's like a glass ceiling made of smoke. Yeah, I yeah. just, I didn't even know it was there. I yeah. just kept on, I would be, it makes you think you're so much more brilliant than you are. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, there's a level of delusion that it's, I just don't think it's healthy. And particularly with the young brains that are developing and they've, now there are so many studies about weed with young men and psychosis and they're yeah. showing evidence. It's getting so much stronger. Yeah. It's crazy. They just found another one the other day that is 30 times stronger than THC. It's another compound. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, look, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't I'm kind know. of with you on this. I, I'm squishy. I, I've always favored for years the decriminalization, which is slightly different than the legalization. Yeah, of weed, I'm right? all for decriminalization. You know, like throwing people in jail for it. I always thought and, it was kind of crazy. But and I can't stand too how there's still so many people sitting in jail, and there are women on Instagram flaunting like their their weed brand. Yeah. So that drives me crazy because yeah. that just seems like an injustice that should be rectified. But one of the points I used to, I've made a couple times on the podcast, I got it from a friend of mine who's smoked a lot of weed uh -huh. and, uh, <laughs> and probably still partakes more than I think he should at his age, but whatever, um, about how to talk to his teenage kids about it mm -hmm. and part of his argument which i think is a very good one i mean i think there are other arguments against it but like uh part of his argument was it that when you're a teenager there's actually a huge amount of value to boredom right it forces you to read stuff you otherwise wouldn't read or do things you otherwise wouldn't do and when you're high the dumbest stuff is interesting right, right. And, it, and it lets you just sort of check out and right. you could play the dumbest silliest video games for hours right. when you're high and it's just a way to sort of go into a different dimension during this really important time in your life and i think that's i mean i've known i know there are a lot of high functioning people out there who like to get high yeah and a lot of stipulated what it bothers me is whenever i have these debates with them about this stuff i'm perfectly willing to concede that people like them exist they have a really rough time conceding that there are also people for whom pot is really psychologically addictive. Yeah. Forget met physically addictive. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying people go into DTs if they don't have their weed, but it becomes, as you put it, a crutch. Right. And it allows them to escape responsibilities. It allows them to sort of recede into this comfortable funk. And, um, and the simple fact is, like, you know, if any of the guys here at the office came to work high, we they wouldn't work here for very long, right. you know? And it, that tells you something about what it does to you when you're high. And I just think the prevalence of it is a real problem. It's just, too, that uh, there's so many things. So I called it kind of this the this warm, fuzzy distance between me and the world. So it robs you of your ability not only to be bored, but to cope. When you, right. I helped so many people quit smoking weed last year because, A, there are no resources for it. People laugh at you. I was guilty of that when I was in rehab. Sure. We, It's like that junkie pride. You're like, oh, you're addicted to weed? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, cry me a river. That's what I did when I woke up. So it there's a... 
derision of people who are trying to get sober. Just it's like a joke to anyone. And even in the rooms, which is not helpful because it's so hard because there are so many factors that make it difficult to quit in general. And the irritation that you feel when you do quit the first week or so is next level. And it's a weird rage that you didn't know you were just suppressing, suppressing. Similar to nicotine withdrawal. Totally. um, Very similar, except I found I found that my you're still clear minded when you when you might be able to take a breath and push down the rage when you smoke a cigarette. But you're not like, it's all right, man. Like it just it does make you this fake sense of kind of compassion and warmth that you think you're feeling is it then you quit smoking weed and you're like, I hate everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I hate everyone. Actually. Maybe I'm still 20 years later going through weed withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> it explains everything. <laughs> um, so yeah. And uh, people who are high functioning, which is interesting. I always said I was a high functioning stoner, which I was. I wonder what they're capable of without it. Yeah. So, Okay, you're high functioning. Awesome. When I quit smoking weed, my life opened up in ways that I had no clue that it would open up. So when people are brilliant and high functioning and doing that, I'm like, yeah, what would you be capable right. of if you weren't a stoner? Right. You'd be like a, a genius yeah. if you could wrangle that energy. But I think a lot of it is just energy that they don't know what to do with. So, um, but. In terms of legalization, though, what do you think about the idea of like legalizing heroin? And all that kind yeah, of stuff? I don't know about that. I I don't I don't know. It's a I, I wish I knew. It's hard for me to even comment on that because I don't know enough about what that looks like. Yeah. So what? You can just go to the store and get heroin. Depending on which libertarian you talk to, maybe you know. So, so let me just give you my take on this, and you tell me what you think of it. Right? Yeah. Because I. I've never taken heroin. Um, uh, I had a recent podcast. I explained some of the interesting ways my various decision trees have gone awry, and you can ask me about that later if you want. But never took heroin, and uh, but my brother did, mm-hmm. and my brother took a lot of other things. And my brother died about ten years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry. I watched what addiction did to my brother, who was always smarter than me, um, and what it did to my parents, particularly my dad, and. My major complaint about, I know that there's a lot of hype, like if you try heroin just once, you'll be addicted for life and all that kind of stuff. And I know that's not true for a lot of right, people. Right, right. I also do know that it's basically true for some significant minority of people, right? And not maybe not the first taste, but three or four times, your likelihood of being addicted goes way up. There's right. Some people just have a taste for it, right? It's like, I know people who have really strong alcoholism in their family. Right. And, the easiest beer to say no to is the first one, right? Right, and um, that's my story. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm not. This is not a judgy point on my part. Yeah, I, yeah. But it's. But my problem with the people who talk about drug legalization is they they talk almost exclusively about the upside benefits, about not only freedom of choice and all these kinds of things, but also the ending the drug war and putting people in jail for. Nonviolent crimes, and I think people play a lot of games with those statistics, but fine. <laughs> um, uh, what they don't come to grips with is that if you legal, if truly legalized heroin tomorrow, there would be more heroin addicts in America 
a week later than there are right now. Yeah, it's we live in I don't know. This is where I struggle with it. We live in a world where everything is convenient and the more it's convenient, the more we use it. Right. So why do we think that wouldn't be true with drugs? Right. If, if Procter <laughs> and Gamble put out a really great <laughs> stick of heroin that you they advertised on the Super Bowl and they promised you quality assurance, more people would try it. Yeah. People actually, it's it's that advertising too is interesting because I always say the reason I go to 12 Steps is that it's my marketing for not drinking. Yeah. For just being, living a sober life because there is so, I mean, I was, I was driving through uh, LA and I was on Wilshire in the 405 and under the freeway and there was a homeless guy who was naked peeing away from the traffic. I and can't believe he, you didn't say hi to me. And he, <laughs> and he took a Corona out and drank it. And it was like this long drink of Corona. And then he, he literally was like, ah, and I was like, God, I'm so jealous of that guy. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's my level of alcoholism is that that and it's it is so cultural. So what happens? And now I see the weed every in L.A. It's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. Every every other billboard everywhere. And I've been I've worked in that industry. Yeah. So now I'm seeing the crushing aspects of big marijuana on yeah. farmers that I know who are just mom and pop farmers and paving over fertile soil with giant, you know, greenhouses and and just ruining perfectly dark, gorgeous places in Oregon with now all of this ambient light that wasn't. I mean, there's so many. It's so funny to me. So many of the most environmental people are are stoners. And I'm like, do you even know the environmental (laughs) cost of weed? It's insane. Go look into it. It's crazy. Um, Quit smoking weed if you care about the environment, (laughs) freaking hippies. All right. Um Changing subjects once again. Go for it. Uh, 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 one person asked me to ask, who hates the State of the Union more, Jonah or Bridget? But we'll skip that one. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. I've okay. always hated the State of the I Union. I despise the State of the Union. <laughs> just, just want to be very clear about this. And I, We did a, the group podcast we had here yesterday, and I had to show remarkable restraint <laughs> because everything I hate about the State of the Union, I hate even more in Trump's State of the Union this week, which mm. was, uh, like, I was waiting for him to shout, look under your seats, everybody. You yeah, get a new food processor, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I wanted to ask you about this, because this is this will be uh, more interesting for some of my, um, my, my listeners can hear a lot about the State of the Union. Of course. Um, uh, apparently, if you Google the, if you Google the term Bridget, Bridget Fetacy book, the results say that you're working on a book titled Seducing Men is Like Hunting Cows. Oh, interesting. When will this magnum opus be out? <laughs> <laughs> and will there be pictures? So it was really, that came from uh, women always asking me for advice. I wanted that to be, I was writing for Playboy for years before I was unceremoniously dumped. Um, so let, let's back up on that. How did you land at Playboy? What did you Twitter. Think? Twitter is uh-huh. Twitter. You know, I hate being called an internet celebrity or whatever, but yeah. it really is true. Uh-huh. In the way that there are YouTube stars and whatever, I guess Twitter has been what has given me uh, the ability to break break through. Yeah, and you can say the same for my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 
And so as embarrassing and humbling as that is, I do think that, um, you know, I just kind of found it in 2013, Twitter, started tweeting, and then found this tribe of writers um, particularly like comedy writers room writers and I, and I was like oh this is what you can use this for telling jokes fun yeah. I didn't even I thought it was like all politics so which is so ironic that I was like oh F Twitter it's all politics and then I ended <laughs> up you know now here I am politics so yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, one of the editors in 2015 a comedy editor from Playboy said uh, someone introduced me to the comedy editor from Playboy I pitched them um, my first ever commissioned piece which was uh, in basically me defending <laughs> jobs <laughs> somebody needed to do it <laughs> it's important work uh, and then my dad was super excited about that and then um I kept begging them for a column, and then they gave it to me. Uh-huh. So my first editor ever, Joe Donatelli, is a genius, and I had no idea that not all editors were. I was so spoiled by him because I had the privilege of working with him for a year and a half, and he made me – I knew nothing about journalism. I knew nothing about writing. A, I knew very little about writing a column. Uh-huh. I didn't know any of the terminology. I just always wrote, and mm-hmm. so – that was really fascinating, and it was a fascinating time to be writing for two men. In 2015, this was, you know, right on the heels of the Me Too movement. Right. Playboy had gone non-nude for a while, and Those there was a days. very strong anti-man sentiment in the zeitgeist. Yeah. So it was very challenging to try, and that's when I was like, what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, so I ended up doing the column in the Playboy Advisor, which was an honor. And women would often ask me uh, questions because obviously I had all this insight into the male psyche from working at Playboy. Mm. And but they were they were always I, they I'm like men are just you guys like overcomplicate a very simple <laughs> creature. It's not hard. So that was going to be the book was um, you know how to. How simple women will be analyzing the text, and they'll yeah. be like, "Why didn't he text?" I'm like, "Because he's not thinking about you. It's yeah. a, he's thinking about sports or work or food right now. When he's thinking about sex, you'll hear from him again." I'm sorry. It's I don't mean to be that. This is not all, hashtag not all men, but in general, this is um, hard, a bitter pill for people to swallow. <laughs> no, I think that's I, I, I think I mean it's, it's like you're quoting the Talmud. Um, <laughs> So uh, let's talk about a little more about the the, the 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 Me Too stuff and all of that. Um, um, I got to say, when it, when it first started rolling out in that sort of moral panic kind of yes. way, I expected that there would be sort of like on college campuses more more false accusations, more hoaxes. You know, I'm not saying there haven't been any. But they've been shockingly few, as far as I could tell. Like right. so far, it seems like every every prominent male who's been accused of s- this kind of stuff kind of seems like they did it. Right. Right. Um, and um, and I, I, I it it's so rare these days to have my cynical expectations not confirmed by reality. Right. Um, 
But um, do you think the Me Too thing has gone too far? Do you think it's about right? There's so much talk about this. And, you know, Megan Dom and I actually, her podcast came out today. She and I had an interesting discussion about this because we're both Gen Xers. And I've talked a lot about this. The I've best le- generation, by the way. The best generation, yeah. other than Gen Z, which I think is the next best generation. Yeah. And... Um, they're Kids. great. Yeah. They're great. I love them so much. They're so funny. They, um, some of it, I'm not sure if I'm just the old lady being like, get off my lawn, you weird yeah. kids. But I've learned, again, this was the gift of writing for Playboy and just being able to interact with so many people. I've learned so much from millennial women and they have pushed, you know, this is, again, the hard thing with, in particular intersectionality, these ideas on the left that are kind of pervasive, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I try to look at what's good in in it. And then, of course, everything's going to go too far. Of course, there's an overcorrection. I I can't, you know, just because I went through life and didn't call out every single person in the restaurant industry who grabbed my butt or whatever doesn't mean that um, they shouldn't be checked on that sure so and this is kind of what the generation below me is like well just because you put up with that doesn't mean we need to you know it's uh, it's unacceptable so in that respect there's a lot of good that's come out of it Mm. the gen a lot of the gender stuff um is very confusing and weird because i feel like there's you can't outthink thousands of years of evolutionary biology because you took a gender studies class right and in one generation right not even so in 10 years and that those ramifications i think are that's kind of dangerous you're playing with something that you don't know what the effects are going to be when you're talking about all this like uh uh, it just feels like such an exercise in privilege. Mm-hmm. All of this ruminating on what does it mean and gender. And really, if you went on someone's Google search, you'd be able to tell pretty quickly what was what, you know, it's something like 90. I, it's just, I, I think you can say one thing, but your Google search will tell the truth about your gender mm-hmm. or your biology or whatever. So, yeah, I mean that um, stuff is that stuff. It it all gets conflated and confusing, and so that's the stuff where I don't know. I think Me Too is important. I think it will be abused. I wrote a piece during the Kavanaugh hearings that I was like, no one's. I wish women spoke openly the way they speak about this stuff privately. Mm-hmm. Where my girlfriends and I would be talking, and she's like, "I'm not going to believe all women. Like, I I don't think you should believe all women. Right? I I don't want that. Is so infantilizing to me as a woman that what I'm not capable of lying and being right. just as duplicitous as men are and and conniving and manipulative because I am. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to fact check that. Yeah. No. Um, no, I think you're right. There's something anti enlightenment about the yeah. believe all women thing. It says that it's creepy that women aren't human beings. Yeah, to I say hate that it. Simply by saying something. That has to be the truth. Yeah, right? I want. I just. How about give women the benefit of the doubt? Because I think historically, 
yes, there's a long history of women not being taken seriously. Yeah. So All women should be heard. Yeah. I think that's a better principle. Yeah, give me the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Take me seriously, but don't assume that I'm not lying. I I want, you know, I don't want to throw due process out the window because you need to just automatically assume all women are are these, you know, somehow virtuous and above these things that plague all men and women. Which is also what's kind of funny about it is that Believe All Women is actually kind of a throwback to a Victorian understanding of women, that they're kind of glass dolls. Right. And if they I, say something happened, it must be true because their virtue is must be protected at all costs. I can't stand it, too, because of the fragility that they've put around women is so... And there's so many competing messages. Like, we saw this this past week with the Super Bowl with... Um, oh, yes, queen, right. like we need to celebrate this. But then there's the whole um, vibe in the culture as if a man looks at your boobs, he's a rapist. Right. You know? <laughs> like, okay, so you keep, you, you're going to flaunt your body and your boobs, but then men aren't supposed to have a like very biological reaction to, to this. I have thought about that particular contradiction many, many times because if the idea is that Look, I mean, they are, for men, most, I would say all heterosexual men, and even some non-heterosexual men, cleavage is an eye magnet, Mm. right? And there are women who, smart, successful, brilliant women, who dress in ways that uh, increase the magnetic attraction (laughs) for the eye magnet. And yet, if they catch you looking at their cleavage, you feel like... Shamed. Yeah, you feel like yeah. your horse just took a dump in a church, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, I, and, and, and and reconciling this, I, you know, it's like this moral panic, you know, look away, look away, you know, that kind of thing. I just think the contradiction there is kind of one of these bizarre cultural things, you know? I've wrestled, so I wrote a whole piece about this because as many of your listeners who wanted to ask me a question, they were jokingly like, ask her about... The history of conservatism and then her boobs, you know. So <laughs> okay, I'm I okay. Uh, there, I I was very when I was working for Playboy, and it was I d- didn't stumble into this weird sphere. Um, I was always putting my boobs online, but it was almost like a, a there were like 15 different reasons that I did it. So mm. I wrote a whole piece about it for Playboy why why I get naked. It was you know, tasteful nudes, but nudes when, nonetheless. When the paywall to dispatch goes up, we'll put some of that behind the paywall. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and so I just, uh, it was an interesting exercise in so many different things. So it was like a social, it became kind of a social experiment inadvertently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, men I was dating would have pushback against it and, and, I would have these really interesting discussions and I feel like I've come a little bit more I in a weird way I've come a little bit more conservative from the free the nipple mm-hmm. because I used to be like well what's the point guys get to show their boobs and in Europe it's so you know they're like we've seen some titties in our time they're mm-hmm. just older than we are so we're a young puritanical country in some respects we've always been weird about this stuff and I was gr- raised in a pretty european um, kind of family where mm. it was like ah whatever that stuff isn't just and I want to be taken seriously no matter 
what. Mm -hmm. So just because I'm naked doesn't mean you shouldn't take me seriously is kind of my... Just to be clear to listeners, you are clothed right now. <laughs> <laughs> Am I, though? <laughs> um, let's... <laughs> tune in for the next podcast and maybe that'll change. But anyway. So I push back against a lot of that stuff and I have cleavage on my YouTube. It's kind of become part of the brand on yeah. Dumpster Fire is um, I always have a shirt that shows cleavage and everyone's like, why? Well, you? you know, I get these comments like you're demeaning yourself by showing cleavage, but... I've always seen it as like the lure that it's tricky for mm. me. I think if you know what you're doing, it's one thing for me to be like, hey, look at my cleavage. And then when you come and you actually stay and listen, I'm like, oh, cool. Right. I, you, you sna I snagged you on my lure. The other, the thing that you're talking about, hey, dress like that. Look, people look at your cleavage and then it's like, how dare you? Right. That's my eyes are up here. Mister. Know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't really care what choice women make in that regards, but I do care if you aren't understanding the, you know, the reaction you might be, be uh, inspiring in men. Um, <laughs> so, um, this is just, this is somewhat fraught territory for me so i'm gonna try a quietly like irish exit from this conversation now um uh, okay so in the time we have left uh we should get to some of the questions that people on twitter asked us to talk about because we are nothing if not slaves to the people we like on twitter and we ignore the rest so um <laughs> uh so you can ask me this question when i'm on your podcast but I'll ask you this one because you're on mine. Uh, it says, Stephen Leach says, especially now that you have left NRO, I would be super interested to hear about how you both think about walking your own path and entrepreneurship, what has worked, what hasn't, and how do you both navigate writing, podcasting, and working for yourself? Yourselves. Love both of your work. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Steve. To you. Uh, so I always wanted to work for myself and I waited tables until I could do so. And that was a choice that I knew I was making. Uh, a lot of people told me I could, I was misusing my brains and I could, you know, get a nine to five, but I tried that for one year and wanted to jump out of a window. So at least with waiting tables, I had control over my schedule and I could, you know, write and off hours. So I do love my friend Sarah Benincasa has a great book called Re Real Artists Have Day Jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you're pursuing a creative path that, you know, get a day job that allows you to still be creative. That's been one of the things that's been helpful getting into it. Now managing it, uh, I'm I str I'm struggling with yeah. time management because I'm horribly undisciplined yeah. <laughs> and I, I look to people like you and David French and I'm like how do they write all of this stuff you know how do you you're so prolific David is David David's is different prolific he, it's amazing yeah what he manages to pull off but you are too you have a podcast you write uh, yeah but it's uh, we can talk about me later um but like do you feel comfortable when you when some? How to put this? My dad said, "Into retirement, I still have no idea what I want to do when I grow up." Right. Do you feel like that too? Um, I for me, it's always been 
I have ideas in my brain and I say it's like LAX and I'm just everything for me is about landing those ideas and bringing them into the world and I as I just went on to Dave Rubin's new platform not platform locals and it's a it gives me an amazing ability as a creator to create like a community around um, all of the creative stuff that I'm doing so I don't I don't know where that leads because mm-hmm. I just always knew I always knew I wanted to write in some regard. Yeah. And I think I had a much more um romantic idea of that like I was going to be some globe-trotting hem- female Hemingway mm-hmm. or live in New York and be an intellectual and I <laughs> none of the above. <laughs> and just for me staying open to that question and not necessarily having an idea. Did I think I would be here sitting here talking to the Jonah Goldberg, the Jonah Goldberg (laughs) who I never knew about until 2016 um, in the weird political, like cultural punditry space. Yeah. No. Yeah. But I just stayed open and I'm, I enjoy making people laugh and I have to write for my own way it's how i process the world and um yeah i I don't now making money i always quote you because you said to me and i don't even know if you remember saying this to me but you said there's no money in nuance kid (laughs) and i quote you all the time everywhere just because that is that's the hard thing being in the space that i'm in which is why i like to focus more on the bigger umbrella bipartisan issues like freedom of speech, comedy, sex and relationships, well health and well mental illness and yeah. recovery, those affect everyone. So that's really the lane I like to be in. Yeah. Because it's not I want to I want I don't want I don't like all this fighting. And no, I don't want to be reliant on the fighting to make money. Yeah. No, I know. Like I I find it exhausting. Um, <laughs> people people one of the most exo- – I mean, I'm curious what you think about this. I find that one of the single most exhausting aspects of the dumpster fire, to use mm-hmm. a technical term, right, <laughs> um, of Twitter, of the political discourse, of all this kind of stuff, is how many people are so unbelievably wrong about my motivations. Mm-hmm. You know, do you get this where mm-hmm. people they, – they, they think they have some unbelievable insight into mm-hmm. who you are when in reality they are – just laying waste to some straw man that has no relationship to who mm. you are and the feeling of crap do I have to respond to this do I ignore this do I let them go along thinking that they got one over on me or do I just sort of take the high road or mm. or do I that I find such an unbelievable I mean it's kind of like a 12 steppy thing such I, an unbelievable waste of mental energy and yeah. I get I get mad at myself for getting mad about it. I was know? crying about this yesterday actually morning because a fellow comedian and friend of mine um he he often is like Trump is Hitler Trump is Hitler and I just interviewed a Holocaust survivor last week and this is a guy who sur- was in Aus- he survived all 5 years in yeah. the war. The things, you know, yeah, and he has said, I, I've been a lifelong Democrat, but I don't know that I'm going to die a Democrat uh-huh. now because of a lot of that rhetoric and also some of the anti-Semitism he's seeing when he goes and speaks on campuses. Yeah. Now, if you're losing the Holocaust survivor vote, 
maybe do some self-reflection yeah. about how hurtful that kind of comparison might be. Yeah. And so I just was like, please stop this. It's just stop. It's not helpful. And he like laid into me and quote tweeted me and called me a Nazi supporter and all these things. And I was so, I can't even, it's, it's upsetting. Yeah. And it's exhausting. You yeah. Know? And it's exhausting that it's exhausting. It, you know, um, but. It hurts my heart. You yeah. know, it's like, it's, it's not, I'm not trying to, I, I can definitely, and I understand to my own part in it. I'm not um, some victim here. I, I throw grenades on Twitter. I find it hilarious to just be, I think the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah. Then it takes, sometimes it'll switch into a tone of very serious and everyone takes himself very seriously and I try very hard to like keep a light positive attitude because I still ultimately think and this is why I bring you up on pretty much every podcast I go on or t on every one of mine because you. you talk so much about gratitude yeah. and I wake up every morning and do a gratitude list so I want to stay in that place of like okay yeah it looks a lot worse than it might actually you and I've been saying lately you know the weird thing about the dystopian future that we're living in is that it was always this wasteland and then you checked into the internet to get away from it. But here it's like, doo, 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 like birds <laughs> and a Disney movie and then you check into the internet and it's just absolute dystopian chaos. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's just uh, that part I find... I have to... I know that, and this is not to go all God on everybody, but... Maybe a lot of your listeners understand that. I know that when I feel like I was feeling yesterday, I'm too much extroverted and not enough in touch with God. Mm -hmm. I, that's where I, when I start feeling like, what am I, you know, I, I question myself a lot. There was a big, as I was kind of feeling politically homeless, mm -hmm. I, I'm like, am, am I crazy? You know, am I the crazy one? Yeah. And should I just be in this like virtual civil war that everyone seems to be waging that I think is slightly overblown? Yeah. No, I like I'm I, I'm with you. I mean, that's I mean, we can talk about this when we turn the tables, but yeah. you know, I I say I'm politically homeless all the time, but I'm I'm more ideologically or philosophically grounded than I've ever been in part because once you realize that you're going to be kicked off a team, mm -hmm. you got to figure out, okay, what am I going to pack up and take with me? Mm -hmm. And what am I going to leave behind, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you start going, it's sort of like, a, it's a it, it's an intellectual or emotional inventory. It's like, I still still think socialism is bad. Got to put that in my bag. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and you start taking these things. And <laughs> so you agree with the team on a lot of stuff. Yeah. But you just look at the way, you know, the team is going after Mitt Romney right now. Yeah. And... I'm fine with people who want to criticize Mitt Romney to this extent or that extent, but the idea that somehow the people who are determined to cast Donald Trump as this rock of intellectual and moral integrity and consistency and then accuse Mitt Romney of being a political opportunist for, for like voting against him, right. you just all of a sudden see, holy crap, look where the team stuff takes you. Right. You know? It's so... It's weird. That is the weirdest thing to watch on the right, where I'm like, whoa, you guys have your own version of stuff that I don't even know where to unpack because it's like a, they treat him like a savior, but he's a golden calf from yeah. my perspective. And it's it's uh, 
the God King stuff is very, they give, you know, the left all the time. They're like, oh, you guys thought that the Obamas were your parents. I'm like, you guys treat this guy like he's the second coming. So how are you any different than... Yeah. It's the same thing. Just it's it, again. It's personalities before principles. Yeah. Because we we've we've elevated celebrity to such a height that of course we're here. Right. You know. On the one hand, it's like people have been. What's that book? The Amusing Ourselves to Death. That was yeah. written in the eighties. Yeah. And he basically called this. Yeah. He no, said, the, "When politics becomes entertainment, it's over." Yeah. Steve Hayes, my partner in crime here at the Dispatch. Uh, when we were text on our text thread watching the State of the Union, he was like, <laughs> "Your favorite." <laughs> he was like, "Oh man, Neil Postman is right," you know, and just yeah, it was just it was Oprah, yeah, the State of the Union kind of thing, but meaner. Um, all right, well, Bridget, this has been fun. I really appreciate you coming on, and Thank I'm looking you for forward. Me. I'm looking forward to uh, you know busting out all the beanbag chairs and throw pillows that you have for your podcast and uh, lava lamps and uh, maybe we'll light some incense and I can do your tarot cards that'd be awesome (laughs) Um, so uh, where are the best places for people to go if they want to find more of you okay so I live on Twitter at Bridget Phetasy and that's with a PH B-R-I-D-G-E-T P-H-E-T-A-S-Y and I have a YouTube show, Dumpster Fire, which somebody said it so perfectly on YouTube. They said, Walkins Welcome, which is my podcast, is um, Gizmo and Dumpster Fire is the gremlin. <laughs> because it is, dump, Dumpster Fire is really me just making fun of all of the insanity and whatever that weekly, I'd love to, I should do it daily. Because I just don't, that's yeah. what, and then I'm on locals.com at fetacy.com. And that is my new hub where, um, you know, behind the scenes stuff. And it's it's like a, it's a subscriber site where you can find a lot of my writing. And then I have a monthly column in Spectator USA magazine. And I often write for them and anyone else who will let me write for them. Cool. <laughs> well, maybe it will be in the dispatch at some point. Yeah. All right. So um, just some housekeeping. If... Uh Folks can um, keep up the reviews. Please check out the, the the Dispatch podcast, our group punditry podcast, which is pretty good. This week's episode was pretty good. We recorded it yesterday, right when the Mitt Romney news was breaking. And um, and also uh, come to thedispatch.com and check out what we got. Sign up for what you want. And um, until then, I'll see you next time.